The show contains adult language and occasional descriptions of violence. Please keep that in mind when choosing when and where to listen. Like, fucking punch him in the face. Some of the most hateful individuals. Like, it's just a trash hole down there. It's it's sad. They think they're fighting for their country. I'm fighting for my country, too. In 2020, the things that had been building for years in America came to the surface. And Portland, Oregon, was at the bleeding edge. It's a city that, in the public imagination, is little more than hipsters running coffee shops and microbreweries. But while every city had some days of racial justice protests, Portland had more than 100. While some cities had Proud Boys and anti-fascists yell at each other, Portland saw them draw blood. I'm Sergio Olmos. I've covered these protests night after night. And I've been covering political extremism for years, from rallies that were just a handful of people to all-out brawls that made national headlines. And last year, I watched as more people across the country were pulled into this world of political street fights. I was at more than 100 nights of those protests in 2020. Almost every night, police would bull rush into crowds, throw flashbangs at people, and cover entire city blocks in tear gas. Police documented using force on people at least 6,000 times. The Justice Department said Portland police often violated its own policies when it comes to use of force. Most nights, I'd go home bruised, my skin burning, and my ears ringing. And then it went to another level. Federal officers would storm the city. One person would suffer a severe brain injury at the hands of those officers. The mayor was tear-gassed. I saw one person get murdered, take his last breath on a city street all over politics. You know, we actually do a menu every month, so for every day, so everything's planned really? out. Yeah. And I want to tell you about one woman who, like me, was out there night after night. Because I'm the one that cooks all the time. This is Laura Kellier. She gardens, she likes to cook for her family, and she doesn't suffer fools. She takes no bullshit. If you got something in your teeth, she'll tell you. Did you see me out there? I saw you out there. We actually, and you don't remember, kind of hurts my feelings. I was with somebody who knew you, and you're like, oh, Sergio, this is Sean's mom. And you were like, oh, hey. And then you went off. <laughs> so I'm like, whatever, bitch, bye. <laughs> On June 26, 2020, Laura Kellier joined protesters. And had a few drinks, and I had some liquid courage, and so I'm like, no. This night, really in June 2020, the crowd was big. The police were outside the Multnomah County Justice Center, which is home to the Central Precinct and local county jail. It was a special night for Laura. It was her son's birthday, and she didn't linger at the back of the protest where it was safe. Do you remember how close were you from the police? I was in his face. In his face? Yes. And were they wearing riot gear? Yes. How did that feel? It felt exhilarating, and it kind of felt like I was channeling Sean, to be honest. Some people were out there for racial justice. Some people went out there to fight the police, and some people went out there for revolution. For Laura, all those things apply 
but she was also out there to be close to her son's spirit. For Laura, this is a kind of ghost story. I kind of wanted to do it too so I could just say he's there. Her son, Sean Kellier, was dead. He had been dressing in all black, protesting the police. But on what should have been his 24th birthday, Laura was there, in the streets, in his place. I had no fear. Because I'm like, what what the fuck are you going to do? My kid's already dead. So I went up to them, very forcefully up to the police, with Sean's picture, and was yelling and screaming. And then all of a sudden, I felt all these hands on me, behind me. The people in the crowd, many of whom were Sean's friends, were standing in support with Laura. I mean, it was it was beautiful because like so much so support and protection for me. The police backed off. They actually moved their line back. Sean Kellier, for most of his life, was on the fringe, and he was killed before so many others started taking the same actions he took. Police say an SUV crashed into a building and someone fired shots into that vehicle. To this day, Sean's homicide is unsolved. So for Laura, the uprising is hard. Any one of the people dressed in all black, yelling at the cops, could have been her son. Seeing people in black block, even though some of it gives me joy, I still look for him. From something else in Oregon Public Broadcasting, this is The Fault Line, season two, Dying for a Fight. Behind each of these people that has a mask on is a real person with a real story. The story of the life and death of Sean Kellier. The story of the radical at the extreme end of American politics before American politics became extreme. Not glad that he's dead, but he was a fucking terrorist. Portland is a disaster. These are really sick, disturbed people. This is an unprecedented security breach in the Capitol. In June of 2021, the Biden administration released a report called the National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism. In part, the report was responding to the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And it says that there's a resurgence of domestic extremism underway in this country. Intelligence officers say racists and anti-government militias are a serious concern post-January 6th. They say that people in those movements are persistent and lethal threats. But this report doesn't stop there. It says that Americans should be worried about, quote, anti-authority, violent extremists. The report authors say these people oppose the government, laws, and capitalism. It calls out some anarchists as violent extremists. This is calling out some of the same people who made the most noise in the wake of George Floyd's murder. The people who had been counter-protesting the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and 3% Militia. The groups that were most active during the insurrection on the Capitol on January 6th. Anti-fascists say they're trying to protect their communities. They believe they are stepping up before fascism takes over the country. But anti-fascists have also become a kind of boogeyman. Cable news shows them breaking windows, setting fires. They've been called terrorists and thugs. But they see themselves as freedom fighters. Wait, we shook a fence and we got shot and beaten? And these dudes are literally breaking into the capital of the United States and you're doing nothing? What the fuck? Sean Kellier built his life around anti-fascism years before political street fights were trending on Twitter. Then he was killed. Nearly two years later, Sean's homicide remains unsolved. 
and the details around Sean's life remain a mystery. What I knew initially about Sean was that he had a shaved head and wore polished boots and seemed to carry it like nothing scared him. And he seemed willing to die for his beliefs. But is that what got him killed? And does his politics play any role in why his homicide is unsolved? So I stepped into Sean's world and tried to find answers. And I found again something that lies at the heart of every protest I've covered. People take to the streets night after night when they feel like there's no other way to address an injustice. So how do you get justice when you feel like the system has failed you? Can you tell me about the birthday cake you made for Sean for his 16th birthday? That's one of my producers, Grant Irving. Of the 13 by 9 rectangle cakes, and there was like chocolate, vanilla, different flavors that was uh, red and black. Anti-fascist birthday cake. Happy 16th birthday, Sean. Go fuck shit up. (laughs) Sean Kellier would be known by many street names. First, he went by Yaka. For a time, he named himself Anteo, after a 15-year-old who allegedly tried to assassinate Mussolini. And his final street name, one that would be printed on T-shirts, hoodies, and spray-painted in buildings after his death, was Arminio Lewis. He was actually a golden boy. He was the sweetest, most precocious, the kindest little thing. And he was. And according to Laura, Sean's standout feature? He was always opinionated. <laughs> and w- when did you notice that? He- By age two? <laughs> if he thought something was wrong, he would speak up. By age four, he was very protective of his brother because his brother didn't have any speech early on. And... Like, people would say, oh, you can't talk to your brother. He goes, I will talk for my brother, and you will not talk to him that way. And he's always, like, took on, like, a leadership role. Laura encouraged her son to be a free thinker. Sean quit high school and started hanging out with radical activists at 15 years old, learning more about the leftist scene in Portland. And yet, he was always close to Laura. So part of it is because my childhood was very different from his. I grew up in extreme poverty, in and out of foster care, beaten, everything possible. And so my thing as a parent is I always wanted to make sure my children felt valued. And he and I have always been really close. So we just had this open dialogue, and he started discussing it. It being anarchy, anti-fascism. We'll get more into that in the next episode. But according to Laura, Sean had been lost. By 15, he had seen inequality, and he was angry about it. He thought justice wasn't possible in this system. He thought the only way was revolution. Activism provided Sean a community. He could connect with people. After a rough couple of years, something was finally exciting. And I saw something in him, and I'm like, I can't try to stifle this. I said, I just need you to be safe. (laughs) Didn't quite happen. (laughs) At first, they had a ground rule. I felt bad because I had told them, as long as you obey the law, they're not going to do anything. I had a hard time with because I still believed, oh, the police are there. They're good. They're to protect us. In 2012, Sean came home from a march while he was still new to activism. And his face was all swollen. And I'm like, what happened to your face? Mom, all cops are bastards. I'm like, Sean, don't you say that. That's not appropriate. He goes, look at my face. I'm like, wait, what? I was on the sidewalk, and because I was saying that I didn't like what they were doing, they punched me. What were your first, like, impulses when when he's telling you, like, what happened? Like, what were you thinking? Honestly, unfortunately... I was still of the opinion that, oh, Sean, something must have happened. You must have missed something, you know, misunderstood. Do you remember, like, how he acted that night? Did he go to, like, go to bed early? Was he up all night? Was he? No, he told me he was was going back out to the streets. 
I said, you know, I'm I'm a little fearful for you. you. You seem really upset. He goes, Mom, I need to do this. And I'm like, okay. He begged me to trust him. So it was a really fine line. It was so hard. I was on the streets on my own at 15, homeless. So I was like, he's not homeless. He has a home that he can come home to. He really believes this. I need to give him that chance. It can be hard to imagine letting a kid not old enough to drive go yell at police in the streets. But Laura respected Sean. So even though it was scary for Laura, it became routine. My producer Grant Irving and I wanted to know what the routine looked like. Did he have a favorite meal that he liked before going out? Lasagna. He loved lasagna because <laughs> it filled him up because he wouldn't know how long some of these events would go for. And then, of course, I would still pack him snacks. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen the picture of the mom preparing their kid to go out with a bandana and whatnot. That kind of was us. Laura says that the night before a demonstration, Sean would be hyper, chatty. But he'd always let Laura know whether he was going to be home that night, and he tried to make sure that his family was going to be safe. Reminded me and his siblings about, you don't answer the door, you know, if I get arrested, this is what needs to happen, all of that to prepare. As many as one in ten American adults are estimated to have attended a racial justice protest last summer. For most of them, attending a protest might have been a big day, a new or rare experience. But for some people, it's a fixture in their lives, like working a part-time job or going to church. For people like Sean, who are regularly attending protests, there's habits that form, a routine before going out and coming back. I want to show you what that's like. And to do that, you're going to hear voices from people who don't want to be identified. There's a certain amount of dread, but it's kind of the same amount as like, oh shit, like I got to go like visit with my parents. Some people are in black block where they dress in all black clothing. They kind of look like ninjas. I would buy things and I'd be like, oh, hey, how's this? Will this cover you up good? No marks on it. Look at that. You know, you get really good at shopping for certain clothes. People have like informal checklists of things to bring from water bottles to granola bars to goggles and gas masks and things you don't bring. I don't bring my cell phone. You shouldn't bring your cell phone because it can be tracked and all this other stuff. Don't bring your cell phone. If you go to a protest, here's generally what you can expect. Some protesters have organizers that plan a route. Some don't. Some protesters spray paint buildings. Some will smash a Starbucks window. And when police show up, some protesters leave. Some get up in their face. That's when the action starts. If you're close to one of the blast balls when those go off, you can feel it reverberate through your whole body. It's... It's overwhelmingly loud. The pepper balls are fired from a paintball gun. So that sound of paintballs being shot and you just kind of clench up and hope that they're not going to hit you. If you regularly go to protests, you're probably at some point going to get pepper sprayed or tear gassed. It's terrible to get pepper sprayed. You can't open your eyes. You're struggling to breathe and you're just hoping that the people who can help you can can find you. Some people act like medics out in the street. I've yelled out medic, and there's been somebody there within five seconds. By the time I'm able to open my eyes, the medics have already went on to help somebody else or are already with the crowd. 
everybody has a preferred way of dealing with tear gas. It's talked about, like you might talk about making pancakes. It's a million different ways to get to the same result. There's a similar conversation about getting the chemicals off your body and clothes when you get home. I have my own version of this. But Laura did some research to figure out her routine and how to help Sean the most. He'd usually, you know, text me, say, okay, you know, <laughs> decontaminate was kind of a joke. If you have pets, you need to be extra cautious. He had to go to the garage and completely strip down. There was always clothes for him out there so that we could wash his clothes immediately. So then he'd have to go in the shower. There'd be milk in there for him. So the milk just helped soothe if he had any cuts or scrapes, which he usually did. So we're talking like a gallon of milk? Just, yeah. I got to ask, was this like regular, like 2% milk? Or is this like... like whole or, milk. Whole milk. Not like organic almond. Yeah, no, no. It's got to be the real deal. <laughs> Besides detoxifying, everyone has some version of recovering. For me, I sit in the car and look at my phone, usually Twitter, and I got Sufjan Stevens on, and then I start driving. And sometimes I pass my house and end up at some drive through that's already closed. Other people say they watch The Simpsons or look at TikTok videos. But for everyone, it takes a toll. Fourth of July went to something I loved as a teenager, to something I just can't stand because it just reminds me of everything I've seen, all the different people I've seen injured, all the injuries I've taken myself. Sean seemed aware of how protests can take a toll on the psyche. He told me, you know, don't feel bad about taking off, you know, or hiding behind me or just ducking behind the banner. That's after the break. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Mr. Folks, please show some respect. In October of 2016, Gregory McKelvey started protesting against the police union contract negotiations. We were occupying the inside of City Hall, but we were not, like, doing anything horrible. Gregory McKelvey is a young black man in the very white city of Portland, Oregon. He led roughly 100 people into City Hall that day. Gregory McKelvey himself is an insider. He works in electoral politics. But to reform policing policies, he was working with a lot of different people, even some with more radical politics, like Sean Kellier. On this day, on October 12, 2016, Gregory wasn't happy with the situation he gotten people into. They were kicked out of the rooms where city council members were meeting, and now they were occupying the lobby. Police were there too. The two sides were staring at each other, and then slowly the police moved forward, forcing the protesters to fall back towards the door. Police are pushing protesters back, shoving the crowd against the doors. They were finally given the go, like, get them out. There's one door in the center, 
and rows of people being pushed towards it. The people that are being pushed, they have nowhere to go. And so you end up just getting hit, hit, and hit, and hit, and falling, and getting hit, right? And it's like blood and guts violence. The scene is like a mosh pit. Sean is at the front of the crowd getting pushed back by police. He's got a buzz cut and a navy blue sweater with a college shirt underneath it. His head bobbles in the crowd as he's being pushed in different directions. Someone falls and he and others help the person up, like in the pit. Gregory comes out with his hands held high, holding a megaphone, like, look, I'm not resisting. Sean pats Gregory on the back and stands in the doorway, trying to help others exit the building. Police shove one black woman, making her stumble a few feet. She gets in the cops' faces, yelling. Sean grabs her, either trying to keep her from lunging at the cops or holding her to prepare for a de-arrest. Eventually, cops close the city hall doors, the riot squad arrives, and the protest ends. Outside, Sean continues to protect Gregory. The leftists are regrouping, and Sean's not letting anyone get near Greg, including a woman with a shaved head who Sean didn't know at the time. Doesn't challenge me, but approaches me in, a fr- in front of Greg and introduces himself as Greg's security. And I was a little taken aback, and... And I'm like, no, I'm this man's security. This is my man. <laughs> this is, I will take care of him. This is Kat McKelvey, Gregory's girlfriend at the time and now wife. From the start, Kat would see something special in Sean. He's got a buzz cut. He's got a half-crooked smile. And he just looks like he's ready to get into some trouble. According to Kat, moments later, an older white man ran up on Greg. He had an aggressive posture and his fist raised. Cat stepped in between them, and then Sean ran up and just removed the guy. And then this guy kind of disappeared after that. I don't don't remember him um, causing much commotion after that. It's really rare to have somebody who's willing to punch somebody in the face for you and go to jail for you and risk things for you, potentially. Sean was taking on those risks for someone who he disagreed with. It's a super odd pairing. It's like a it's like a buddy cop movie. One person is like the radical anarchist, and the other person is like the one that might be called for a CNN panel. And yeah, it's, it's not it's not normal. But I'm a hundred percent sure that most of the people in his like circle were not fans of me. Gregory came into the limelight, making impassioned speeches for Bernie Sanders and other local progressives. But we are here to show that love overcomes hate. At your Thanksgiving dinner, Greg might seem like a socialist, real out there. But to Sean, someone who's used to punching Nazis on the street, Greg was a liberal, mainstream, not a revolutionary. Gregory interviewed Sean on KBU, a local community radio station. The Democratic Party, they're complete morons, and we need to just cut the slate clean. On social media and on angry cable news programs, Antifa and Black Lives Matter are sometimes used interchangeably but they're different. Sean was an anti-fascist, but he didn't recognize himself as Antifa. And while Gregory believes that black lives do matter, that wasn't his organization. But the outside world rarely makes those distinctions. Gregory has a bit he likes to do about an Antifa BLM barbecue. They really think there's an Antifa barbecue. We get our membership cards. You get your Soros check. We have conference calls. And we have meeting after meeting out of busting windows. Um, No, none of this shit happens. In reality, it was a relationship based on shared ideals, 
but very different politics. Am I an anarchist? No. No. Am no, I just no, a liberal? You got a lot better than you were last year. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> you can hear that they enjoyed one another. But despite Antifa and BLM always being part of the same sentence on TV, Sean was risking his safety for someone he disagreed with. Why do you say, I'm going to provide security for you? The reason he did it to me was because he said, if cops come here to target somebody, they're going to target them because they're the leaders. I don't think he liked me at the time. I think that I could have spoiled it then, too. What led Sean and Greg to overlap is both of their very different personal histories. They needed each other. For a while, they were forced together. If you had Sean's support, he was going to go to bat for you. Sean held a lot of unpopular opinions, even within the anti-fascist community. As a teenager, he wrote a piece entitled Why Break Windows? In that, he posed the question, why smash a window? He answered, why the fuck not? Sean talked big, but he wasn't reckless. So we're getting tear gassed the shit out of when Trump gets elected, right? I think the Portland police might have unloaded about half their tear gas supply just in that day. It's just gas fucking everywhere. This is Micah Fletcher, Sean's friend since grade school. Everybody's hawking and coughing. I think one person actually coughed a little blood. They were like asthmatic and they had no business being there. And there's this, this, this woman. She was probably some hippie from the college, PSU. They just saw that people were on the street. She was like, yeah, fuck Trump, dude. Comes out and starts yelling shit, right? And then the fucking flashbangs and the tear gas comes out. And she's, of course, has no idea what to do. And I see Sean. And, th- and this is what I mean when I say that the kid was a good kid. Did so much shit based on other people's needs or thoughts, right? You couldn't fucking turn a corner and the kid didn't pop up. You're just like, how the- you were five blocks away. How the fuck did you get here? So, so I see him juke my left side, comes down the road, rips off his fucking rebreather, puts it in her hand, says, put it on, and just dips. Never met this girl once in his life. Didn't need to, didn't want to stop, shake her hand, say hi, didn't want to like handhold her and go save her. For, no, gave her the tool, told her how to use it, fucked off. That's Sean. That's who Sean was before Trump had his first day on the job. According to Micah, he only got more brazen. That kid, towards the end, it was like, dude, you're gonna go to prison forever. Yaka, do you get this? You're, what are you fucking doing? Showed up at the Battle of fucking Portland, no mask on, gets in a fight with, I wanna say, eight fucking dudes. You're gonna go to prison forever, Yaka. But he didn't end up in prison. That's after the break. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of, like, freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death! Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. 
walk us back. Um, when did you hear about Sean's murder? Um, that night. It was around midnight, Saturday, October 12th, 2019. Exactly three years since Sean was at City Hall, helping injured protesters, getting a guy away from Cat and Greg. And in the years in between, Sean had done the same sort of thing countless times. But this night, he was just out drinking with a couple of friends. Sean and his friends were leaving Cider, right? It wasn't just any bar in Portland. They were leaving the bar that was a kind of a home base for Portland's anarchist scene. Just a few months earlier, members of a far-right group showed up and a huge brawl ensued. But tonight, on this night, there wasn't any of that violence. Him and his friends were outside a riot. They left. They were walking where their car was parked. And then something happened. Some sort of altercation. Countless times, Laura had prepared meals for Sean before he went out. She'd been warned how to prepare herself in case something happened. But by this time, Sean was 23. He was living on his own and was doing what millions of Americans do on a Friday night, to unwind from work. So Laura was caught totally off guard. Uh, well, it was about 1 a.m. or so. Um, they got a hold of me through Facebook Messenger, and one of his friends told me, you need to get to Emanuel Hospital. Sean's been hurt. They didn't elaborate any more than that. My first thought is, oh, God, what did Sean do now? It's probably going to be something stupid. As Laura arrived at the hospital, police cars were everywhere. There were emergency lights flashing. Laura didn't know that those police cars were detaining the people who had driven Sean to the hospital. When she got inside, she was sent to a sterile waiting room filled with other friends of Sean who had gotten word of what happened. Sean was hit by a car. Then the chaplain came in. And as soon as the chaplain came in, I knew what that meant. And they told me that in a minute the doctor would come and explain things, but that Sean was gone. That is how I found out. Sorry, can I get some Kleenex? Surgery, would you actually I know this is tough. No, it's all right. The one solace I have is later on, the ME did tell me that Sean died pretty much on impact. And police are calling his death a homicide. In the following days, you could see the blood stain of where Sean had been struck, how he'd been dragged, and where the SUV finally stopped after hitting a building. At some point, a man fired gunshots at the SUV. The driver and whoever else was with them fled and abandoned the car. The SUV had plates from Washington State. By the time Sean had died, it had been years of members of right-wing groups coming into Portland from Washington to brawl with anti-fascists. Everybody was worried this was a political attack. And the police made a bad impression on Laura. The chaplain, the doctor, then the detective came in. And it was really difficult because they were like, they wanted to know more about who Sean's associates were than about what happened to him. And it was not the time or the place. What did they say? They were like, well, we need to know who Sean was hanging out with. How did you find out about this? Da, da, da. And I, I don't even remember all the questions just because I was just like, are you fucking kidding? Oh, and the other thing that I will say that has had one of the hardest impacts on me is the hospital refused to let me see his body. The ME refused to let me see his body. I never got to see his body. And I know that it was mangled and gross and whatever, but I needed that closure. 
because afterwards I kept thinking this is a sick joke. There's no way. What, I, I know you, you, what was your recollection of that, the, that detective's approach? Was he talking to you like, like, like the, the, the mother of a victim or was he talking to you like? No, like Sean was the criminal. And he wanted to know who his friends were, like names and stuff. Names and associates, but it seemed to me, and it still seems to me, that they only cared for names on the left. Sean wasn't an ideology. He was a human being with friends and family. He was like a little, like a guardian angel. It just, he seemed larger than life. He seemed indestructible. You know, he was one of the only people that showed up that didn't make what happened to me about some stupid fucking culture war. He just asked me how I was doing. Laura had this message for the driver of the SUV. He didn't kill some terrorist punk on the street. He killed a young man that would have given his life for him. He killed somebody who would have given his life for so many people. Shortly after Sean's death, Laura made a statement. Hello, I'm Laura Kellier, Sean Kellier's mother. I am requesting that no one give statements to the media or make public statements regarding my son's death. I want all public statements to stop. She wanted police to be able to conduct their investigation, and she cooperated with them. I still was naive enough to believe that they really did care about justice and that they were going to do their job. Nearly two years after her son's death, talking to us seemed like one of the few options to find closure. This is kind of my journey uh, of justice and, and to prove once and for all how, how ridiculous the Portland police are and how disgusting they are and how biased they are and their lack of ethics. Laura didn't believe that all cops were bastards. But the way she feels now is a result of the way she was treated, the way that she feels Sean's case has been handled. She's lost faith not just in a couple of police officers, but in the entire system. What happened along the way changed her. In this series, we're gonna get answers. On the surface, Sean's killing seems straightforward to solve. They have the car with the license plate. They have every single person that they could forcibly interview. They could detain somebody, they could do anything. The reason his murder is not solved is because of who he is, for sure, absolutely. Are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. But law enforcement says it's not so simple. The way that we approach any case has nothing to do with anybody's politics or beliefs. Witnesses will come forward. The, the cops aren't like gonna go work hard, like we're the enemy. And the way this case breaks down will reveal how people get pushed to the extreme, pushed to lose all faith that justice is possible. That was my baby. That was my, that was my firstborn. That was my, my, I loved him so much. I will never get to hold him again. In Portland, some people are now at the extremes. I've been on the ground with them for years. And what I know now is that extremism is something that lives in the voids of American life. And those voids are growing. Next week, we look at what brought Sean and others to those extremes and the consequences. Dying for a Fight is a co-production between Something Else and OPB. The show was reported and produced by Grant Irving, Ryan Haas, and me, Sergio Olmos. We also had reporting and production help from Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson. 
This episode was written by Grant Irving and me, Sergio Olmos. Our editors are Anna Griffin and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our theme music is by Deli Girls. You can check out their music at delligirls.bandcamp.com. Music by Nolan Schneider and Pete GK. Additional music by Deli Girls. Sam Baer is our sound engineer. Executive producers for Dying for a Fight are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anna Griffin. Thanks also to Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, and E.K. Iguatola. Production assistance from Bashak Artin. Oregon Public Broadcasting's critical reporting on protests and movements in the Northwest are made possible by the support of our members. Do your part to help contribute to the vital coverage and analysis. Become a sustaining member of OPB with an ongoing monthly contribution now at opb.org pod. Thank you for your support. <laughs>